The Spectator is Europe's fastest growing current affairs magazine. Subscribe today and find out why. You'll get 12 weeks in print and online for just £12. Plus, we'll send you a bottle of Spectator gin worth £30. So if you do the math, you'll work out that is absolutely free. Go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash gin. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and my guest this week is the veteran foreign correspondent Michaela Rong, whose new book is Do Not Disturb, the story of a political murder and an African regime gone bad. Now, the regime in question is Rwanda, and the thesis of the book, if I'm not oversimplifying it, is that Paul Kagame, the president of Rwanda and a great you know, donor darling, as you put it, is in fact a very, very, very bad man indeed. Can you start by talking about how that realisation sort of came, snuck up on you, if you like? Because obviously for a long time, he was the great hero who saved Rwanda from the genocide. And, and of course, to many people, he is still exactly that. Uh, and the reason I wrote the, the book was to try and correct that widespread impression. I think I, I went through a, a trajectory that a lot of journalists, diplomats, aid workers, people who engaged with Rwanda went through. I think I'm, I'm sort of fairly, fairly typical of a, a part of that, that community in that I went into Rwanda immediately after the genocide when the bodies were still fresh in the fields. And, you know, the, the horror and the grotesque violence that you could see all around you, there were sort of blood stains all over the, the church aisles and you could see there were freshly dug graves and where, where thousands of people had been very hurriedly buried. And so, you know, between 500,000 and a million, mostly Tutsis, had been killed in the space of three months. So it was, it was such a shocking episode in history. And what became clear was that these killings had been carried out by the militia and the army of uh, juvenile Habyarimana, the, the president who had died in a plane crash. And they were on the run and heading out of the country. And when they did give a few press conferences to people like me, which they did, they were just full of anger and bile and saying that the West had sort of made it impossible for them to fight against this encroaching rebel army, the Rwandan Patriotic Front, because it had banned all arms imports. And they were not a convincing or credible group of people. And we were presented with the horrors that their administration were responsible for all around us. And coming into the country where the Rwandan Patriotic Front, led by Kagame, Paul Kagame, the RPF, and they were disciplined, they uh, were straightforward, they were bringing order to chaos, their very presence sort of ended the violence, and they were accessible, it was easy to talk to them, easy to interview Kagame, and they were a very impressive, articulate, motivated driven bunch of people and I think it was therefore not that surprising that we all thought these these people are amazing and thank god you know they're going to reimpose order and they're going to stop the violence and you know looking back that impression a lot of that impression was true but an awful lot of it was also premised on ignorance because journalists like myself had not been covering for the most part what had happened in the build-up to the genocide, and the RPF had, had sort of occupied northern Rwanda 
And it's fairly clear that some pretty nasty things happened in the zones that they occupied. And the psychosis uh, of the Hutu majority that led to the genocide that was part of the key factors why people behaved in that way was in part because of the RPF's invasion of the country in 1990. And I think uh, we tended, as journalists coming in fresh to the story, we didn't tend to put it in its regional context or its historical context. So we didn't know any of that detail, but it was very important detail. And then what happened later was, you know, you saw this very (laughs) motivated and driven former rebel movement. Uh, Yes, beginning to rebuild the country, beginning to get things working again, uh, declaring that it was very much wanting to end this toxic relationship between Hutus and Tutsis and everyone would, would just be a Rwandan now. But they also were backing rebel, uh, a rebel group that invaded the Democratic Republic of Congo, Zaire, as it was then. And as they hunted down the militias and the army soldiers who had gone into exile in the refugee camps of, of Zaire, they slaughtered tens of thousands of people. There are 200,000 people who just went missing. And that was, a, that was, I think, a turning point for a lot of the, the people who had been such admirers for the RPF and that you suddenly thought, oh, wow, you know, this is, this is mass slaughter and uh, this is not what we expected. So, so that was certainly a moment where a lot of people reassessed. But there, there were a series of turning points of that sort. Now, one of the things you talk about in the book, which, which for, I think a lot of the, the sort of semi-ignorant Westerners who you know, know about the genocide from the uh, newspapers will, and, you know, have a sort of half, half-remembered version of it. It will be a surprise in your book how much, you know, how many of those key players actually are Ugandan and how long the history before the genocide was. Yeah, that was, that was one of the really fascinating things about the story. For me, the, the big question was, where did the RPF come from and why are they the way they are? And to answer that question, you have to go to Uganda. And that RPF rebel movement was born in the refugee camps of Uganda because that was where, you know, the, there was this expulsion by Javier Imano's Hutu regime of all these Tutsis, the royal court and all its hangers-on. And many, many ordinary Tutsis were just expelled from the, the country in the 50s and 60s. And ended up living in refugee camps in neighbouring countries, not just Uganda, also Burundi and Zaire. And really, it was this extraordinary exodus-type story with lots of parallels, actually, between Israel and, and Palestine, where you have a community of embittered, aggrieved, displaced, humiliated people who uh, are living in very humble circumstances and plan and plot their return to the country that has expelled them. But alongside that community of aggrieved and embittered refugees, you also had, uh, because, of course, uh, Africa's borders are never solid, you had a lot of Kenya Rwanda-speaking Ugandan Rwandans who had been there for generations and thought of themselves as Ugandan Rwandans. And what what happened is during the 1980s, when the Ugandan president, Milton Obote, turned on that community and decided that they were a challenge to him because uh, he saw them as, as natural allies of uh, Yoweri Museveni, who at that stage was a rebel leader. Um, and so he started, as, he launched a program of ethnic cleansing and he turned that community of Ugandan Rwandans against him 
And they all joined up in droves. They joined uh, the 70s rebel movement, the NRM. And that's where they learned to fight. And so that, that was a very important stage because uh, basically you had this secret rebel movement, which was the RPF, nestling within the, first the NRM, which was the Ugandan rebel movement, and then inside the Ugandan army. And, you know, nobody really realized quite how big and important it had become or what its agenda was until 1990 when the boys crossed, as they say, you know, they, they, went, uh, they went across the border and invaded Rwanda. It's a hair-raising chapter, that, because, you know, there's this question of how much does Museveni know what's going on? And yeah. suddenly, you know, half his army deserts and takes the heavy artillery with it. Yes, and they've been plotting it for years, you know, and they've been stockpiling the key members of the RPF who, who were all, you know, high-ranking people in his new Ugandan army. Um, they, they'd been plotting it. They'd been stockpiling missiles and weapons. They were, they were ready to go. And, and they finally crossed over, taking, taking a lot of very good equipment. And it was very embarrassing for Museveni at the time because he was regarded with suspicion by other African leaders. And this sort of merely confirmed them in the view that this guy was a sort of unstable influence on Africa and just, just the kind of guy who was happy to overturn established African regimes, you know, because there's this suddenly this, this new rebel movement bursts forth. It's a bit like the scene from Alien. This new rebel movement bursts <laughs> forth from the body of the Ugandan army and invades Rwanda. Yeah, which was itself a rebel, rebel movement in the first place. Um, can we talk a little about some of the key players? Because one of the things that I think is a real strength of your book is how, how personal it is, how much you've got a sense of the people involved. And the, the protagonist, in a way, or the person around whom it hinges, because it begins with, with his assassination in Cape Town, is Patrick. Can you tell me a bit about Patrick and what his role was and, you know, what kind of man he was? Yes, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, it's fashionable to see history as a process of forces and, uh, which have their own momentum. And I, I think my book presents a completely opposite version of history, which is it's all about the people and the individuals and the relationships between those individuals. Patrick was a very interesting guy because he was one of those Ugandans who had, uh, Ugandan Rwandans who had uh, been brought up in Uganda, were just as much at ease in Uganda as they would ever be in Rwanda. His, his family went back generations uh, in, in Uganda and very, very smart, very clever, you know, started out life as a, as a herds boy. But when, when his sort of headmasters noticed that he was really a very clever pupil ended up at a very good school in, in Kampala, took a law degree, joined Museveni's uh, rebel movement in the bush. And from there, of course, he then joined the secret, you know, Rwandan army, uh, uh, Rwandan rebel force that, that was uh, uh, sort of nestling inside the, the Ugandan army. He was very un, uh, untypically Rwandan. There is a sort of stereotype of Rwandan behaviour and it's sort of reserved introverted, not at all open to outsiders. And I think uh, Patrick was, was, he was sort of, he was a little out mouth. He liked his beer. He liked women. He, he was a great guy for sort of um, cracking jokes. And he had a bit of a sort of foul mouth. And I think that, he, that he, in that way, he was very much more Ugandan than Rwandan. 
and that's why he became the kind of go-between uh, for journalists. So he, he was the head of external intelligence, which is a pretty important job in any country. But he was also the guy who dealt with a lot of journalists like myself because he was good at it. And he liked journalists and he liked company. And he knew how to kind of manipulate the press and get the version of history that the government wanted told into the mass media. So, yeah, very unusual character who then went on this very interesting trajectory because he sort of falls out with Kagame, who suspects him of plotting against him. Never really has any proof of that, but just uh, what, what one suspects went wrong was that Patrick simply wasn't respectful enough and that Kagame's ego was ballooning and he wanted everyone to count out to him. And he was this guy who'd known him since they were at school together. You know, they'd been at each other's weddings. They, they knew everything about one another. And he was this guy who just wasn't sort of paying him due respect. So he was taught a series of lessons. He was put under house arrest and he was jailed. Then he was finally freed and told that, you know, he, he, his life would count for nothing if he stayed in Rwanda and he should get out. So he goes into exile and sets up an opposition party. And at that stage, he becomes the enemy who has to be taken out by Kagame. And so you have this extraordinary situation in which he ends up being strangled in a South African hotel where he's been lured by a, a trusted Rwandan businessman friend called Apollo. And, you know, this was a killing very clearly ordered by Kigali, called Kigami, signed off on it. And this was, um, you know, his old friend from his school days who he was having assassinated abroad. Yeah. And you, you I mean, he, he's part of a sort of diaspora that, I mean, as you express it, there's this, this other guy, the general, very popular military man who also falls out with Kagami, also goes into exile, hooks up with Patrick, and that's the point at which they become really dangerous. Yes, I think what's quite interesting is I think there's a complete sort of chasm between the vision of, of what threatens the Rwandan regime today and what Kagame is really worried about. It's always presented as here's this beleaguered Tutsi minority uh, scarred by the, this terrible genocide, uh, and there are Hutu killers out there in the forests of Congo still ready to sort of finish off the unfinished business of the genocide. And my reading, having spoken to analysts who specialise in this subject, is that, yeah, there, there may be some of those um, ex-genocidaires, they're called, in the forest, but there are very few of them. They're ageing and they don't really amount to much and do not represent a real threat to Kagame. The people he's really worried about are people like the late Patrick Karagaya, uh, General Kayumba Nyamwasa, um, who are former Tutsi insiders. These, these were his, his closest aides. You know, the general was the chief of, uh, of staff and also the head of, of intelligence at one stage. And you know, Patrick had been the head of external intelligence. And uh, you've also seen defections of uh, Kagame's uh, chef de cabinet, Theogene Rudasingwa, his solicitor general, Gerald Gahima. And the, these are the defections that matter to Kagame because these guys know how the system works. They have a lot of friends back in Rwanda who may not declare that, <laughs> that, that alliance, but have a lot of sympathy with the reasons that, that forced them into exile. And these are, are for, you know, a Tutsi former insiders. So you can't throw in their face the idea that they are genocidaires who are racists of the worst caliber who want to finish off the massacres of 1994. These are guys who are saying, no, this is a dictatorship. 
there is uh, no accountability, it's uh, financially uh, and economically corrupt, it's looting Eastern DRC, the elections are routinely rigged, and there's no freedom of the press. And this is not why, you know, we invaded in 1990 to overthrow Javier Amana. We did not do that to replace the Javier Amana regime with another dictatorship. And that, on that ground, Kagame feels very uncertain and very insecure. And you knew Patrick, it seems, fairly well. There's an awkward thing that he, you know, there was blood on his hands as well, wasn't there? I mean, not only did he know, he know where the bodies were buried, he buried some of them himself. Yes, he died before I started the book. And I, I had had a conversation with him in which I'd said, you know, when he was already in exile, I'm very disillusioned and bitter about um, what had happened. And I said, you know, Patrick, <laughs> you need to write a book. And he said, oh, I don't have time for that. And I said, no, look, you know everything. That would be a fascinating book. And I will help you if you need a ghostwriter. And of course, he died without doing that. Uh, and so as a result, I will never know what he was directly involved in and what he wasn't directly involved in. What he often used to say, and it's true that this was a modus operandi of Kagame's, is that Kagame used to kind of tender out things like foreign hits. So he would sort of basically make it clear to his various people in intelligence around it, surrounding him, because you know everyone surrounding Kagame is in intelligence, that a certain person needed to be eliminated. Uh, and then it was sort of they would compete amongst themselves to carry out that operation. But uh, Patrick would say that as head of external intelligence, just because there was an assassination didn't mean that he was personally involved and that many of these operations he hadn't been consulted about, he hadn't been told, and he would never have approved them. Who knows if that was true or not? Uh, he certainly went to his grave with an awful lot of secrets. And I, I don't see how you could be head of external intelligence with, without having acquired a huge amount of, uh, of knowledge of what was going on. So, I mean, that, that's one of the tantalising things about the book, that you, you just sort of think, you, you know, that I, I just wish I'd had more conversations, more interviews with Patrick before he died. Can you tell me a bit about Kagami himself as a character? I mean, he's rather a kind of grey sort of sidelined figure in the early years, isn't he? Yes, I mean, one of the heroes of my book, and it was really nice to write about him because um, every Ugandan knows who this man is, and every Rwandan does as well, is Fred uh, Rujema, who was Museveni's sidekick in the years when Museveni was just a, a rebel leader in the bush, and who then became a, a sort of top man in the Ugandan army, and he was a Rwandan refugee. Um, and so when the RPF was being plotted and, and set up, Fred was the sort of driving force behind that. And Fred was killed on the second day of the invasion in 1990 under still unclear circumstances. And that was when the torch was passed to Kagame. And so you have a, a situation in which someone who, who was always seen as Fred's friend, but wasn't particularly popular amongst the other Rwandan soldiers within, within the army, that he suddenly then becomes a leader and a very insecure leader who doesn't know if he really commands the loyalty or even the respect of his key commanders who are older than him, who have much more military experience. Because Kagame's position when he was in the NRM rebel force 
was he was an intelligence officer. And he had a rather unappealing role because um, he was the man who, when when soldiers were put on trial for indiscipline or, you know, um, when I say soldiers, I mean rebels. So uh, in the bush, when an NRM rebel had been seen consorting maybe with a village girl or getting drunk or had picked a fight or generally behaved badly, there would be a court-martial in the bush. And Kagame's role was to collect the information and collect, you know, basically serve as a prosecution. And often these guys were then executed. So that was the role that he had played, and he had made himself a lot of enemies. And he was very much feared as a result. He, was, he had a nickname, Pilato, uh, because he was the guy who used to sort of declare judgment and, uh, and wash his hands of the man concerned. So given that past, when he then becomes the head of the RPF, he struggled at the beginning to impose himself on the rebel movement and, and did so by using extremely harsh disciplinarian tactics. Uh, and I think what you, what you get is you, you get the sense of someone who's never felt relaxed in their post. I mean, he's always been insecure. He's always had a complex, an inferiority complex. He's always felt the ghost of the much more popular Fred looming over his shoulder. And the cleverer Patrick. There's a, there's a sort of schoolyard aspect to it as well, isn't there? Patrick was cleverer. Yeah, well, uh, Fred was more popular and Patrick was cleverer. Um, yes, and I, and I think um, Kagame found those two things very hard to, to bear. And there are lots of little incidents along the way where you see that sort of irritation and fury bursting out. So I, I do think Kagame is a really complicated man. And I think uh, a lot of what we see happening now with this very repressive regime and the sort of hunting down of enemies abroad is very much, you know, the result of his personality traits. I don't think that <laughs> these things would be happening if it weren't for um, his sort of iron control of, of that society. Now, the sort of three, I don't know what you call them, charges or three kind of key points in terms of culpability, there's a question over what happened to Fred. Do you think that either Kagami or people sympathetic to him had him killed? Or do you think it's impossible to know? It's obviously possible to know, but it's surprisingly hard. And I, I find that one of the most curious things. You know, you have a young man a young rebel commander being killed in 1990, which is still, you know, an era, it's not that, not that long ago. Uh, and yet there's so much uncertainty over what happened because I think there's so much invested in the various interpretations. Personally, uh, I don't think that Kagame had him killed. Uh, there, there are theories to that effect, and I know some historians embrace them, but uh, I think, um, I, I do tend to think it wasn't a stray bullet I, I think that's just too clean and too neat. I think uh, that there were a lot of egos jostling within that rebel movement and that that came out on the second day of the invasion and, and it's probably that he, he was killed by his, uh, his colleagues. And I can see why that would be very important. It would be very important at that stage not to let that, you know, that story out. You know, so I think I think everyone agreed that that was not going to be the version of history that was going to be uh, written down. But Kagame at the time was in Fort Leavenworth uh, on a U.S. training military training course. So the idea that he personally organised it, mm, I find that hard to believe. 
And it's also sort of sidetracked the, the assassination of Lohan Kabila, which, you know, in your account of it, because it sounds like Kabila was kind of this washed up, hopeless figure whom the Rwandans make a sort of puppet for their effectively an invasion of Zaire, as then was. And then they get fed up with him when he starts showing his teeth and they bump him off. And you've got quite a sort of, you know, smoking gun on that, haven't you? Well, yes. And Patrick himself, once he'd gone into exile and was being much more open about what uh, the regime was responsible for, Patrick used to say, well, of course we did it. Kabila was killed by one of his bodyguards, a young bodyguard who, who was fed up with um, what had, how the other young bodyguards, Kadogos, had been treated and the, the inspirational, charismatic commander who had recruited them had been uh, uh, executed by Kabila. So there were gripes and grievances there. But, but the question is kind of like when, uh, when and why was that um, assassination launched? And Patrick certainly would tell people that... Um, that the Rwandans had sort of been in touch with the bodyguard and urging him on uh, and telling him to get it done. So it's quite possible that the Rwandans were involved in that. And after all, it is part of a track record in which, you know, <laughs> they had already eliminated uh, Mobutu Sesaseko, Goran uh, Kabila's uh, predecessor. He had already been toppled by the uh, the Rwandans backing Lauren Kabila's rebel force. And, and then, of course, there's the whole issue of who brought down the plane with juvenile Habyarimana and his Burundi. I was going to say, Burundi that was the third that I wanted to, to mention this. Yes, yes. So, you know, if, if, if you accept, you know, the thesis that the RPF brought down that plane, and I think there are good, you know, there's good evidence in that direction. There's good evidence in both directions, but... Uh, Certainly, all of, all of the sources I ended up talking to, the Tutsi insiders who fled into exile, were saying, of course we did it. But then you've got a series of presidents who've, uh, who've all been bumped off by the, the RPF, one after another. I mean, the, the downing of Habir Mana's plane is seen as having kind of kicked off the genocide. Is that what the RPF expected to happen? It would have been obvious to anyone on the ground at the time, given uh, the situation and given the extraordinary amount of tension in the air and the, the sort of, there was this extraordinary build-up with young, you know, Hutu militias roaming the streets and the, the Rwandans, uh, the RPF already had 600 troops inside Kigali and they were sort of eyeing each other up. But killing the president was going to spark something pretty massive. Whether anyone could have anticipated that that many people would die, um, I, I, don't, I don't think anyone could have anticipated it because it, it just took everyone by surprise, you know, that you know, 500,000 to a million people could be killed in that space of time. You know, many of those deaths sort of carried out not by army soldiers shooting or throwing grenades, but by people using machetes and people killing neighbours, friends, people they'd lived alongside uh, all their lives. And I, I, I think that's so hard to conceive and imagine that maybe no one could have, could have foreseen that. What do you think they were thinking? I mean, they, they looked like they had something like the military upper hand at that stage, didn't they? Did they just think this will speed things along? I mean, would, I'm just interested in how they'd have, you know, anticipated it playing out. 
and indeed how it would have played out if they hadn't, if they thought there's going to be blowback, let's do something different. Well, if you accept the thesis that the RPF brought down the plane, what former members of that rebel group will tell you is we wanted a complete victory. We didn't want to end up sort of sharing power. We wanted it to be absolutely clear who the victors were. It was about sort of establishing that this, this was the, that, that the war had been won by the RPF, not sort of ending up with some negotiated, you know, power sharing, transitional government. And I think that makes sense. I think, you know, that's the way military men often think. They're not terribly keen on peace discussion, peace talks and negotiations and, and share, sharing portfolios. Um, and, and I think that there was a sort of like, like very black and white approach of like, let's just sort this out. And, you know, we're going to be running this country from now on. And that, that single-mindedness of purpose, I mean, you, you say that... And I can't remember the exact line from the book, but you say that there's a point at which the RPF are advancing while the genocide's going on. They're advancing on Kigali through the north of Rwanda. And if they didn't quite stop the genocide, it wasn't part of their mission. They were they were interested in getting to Kigali and they weren't, you know, stopping to try to prevent the violence. And indeed actually said, I think you say, you know, peacekeepers, no, no, it's all over. There's no point in you coming in. There were various episodes in which um, the UN was, which had pulled out a lot of its peacekeeping troops when the when the genocide kicked off, was saying, "Okay, we're going to send in reinforcements to, to stop that. This is sort of uh, this is ghastly. It's dreadful." Uh, and then also you had the whole episode in which the French were planning to send in Operation Turquoise, which was a, a group of um, French soldiers to go in, and uh, you know. The idea was both of these military operations were, were going to stop the, the bloodshed, although the French um, motivating factors were rather more complicated than that. But, but every time the RPF, and this is on the record, I mean, there are lots of memos and telegrams to this effect, the, the RPF would say, you know, we don't want you to intervene. We don't want you to get involved. The genocide is already over. There's nobody left to save. Which was a very sweeping thing to say and not exactly true in that there were lots of redoubts where Tutsis were desperately fighting for survival and were hoping to be rescued. But again, I think it shows that single-mindedness. It was like, no, no, we need, we need the international community to keep away because we want this to be total victory. And if the worst thing would to be get a UN force or particularly the French who are always, you know, seen as the friends of Habyarimana and likely to come in and then fight on Habyarimana's behalf or, or his, 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 the government, uh, the Hutu government's behalf. We don't want them getting interfering. So, um, so that was the line was, you know, the, the genocide is already over. There's no one left to save, which is a, a very ruthless statement to make at that point in time, but I think fits with that whole sort of military mentality of, of let's... Uh, Let's sort this out. It will sort this out in our own terms. Now, those Westerners who who have read a book about the genocide will almost certainly have read, you know, tomorrow we, we wish to inform you we'll be killed with our families. Philip Gurevich's book, which was written not that long after, was Gurevich kind of sold a pop? Um, no, I think, um, I think Gurevich's book, I read it and I enjoyed it and it taught me a lot. But I think he's... What that book lacks is context. 
And I'm not surprised because I don't think he, he went outside of Rwanda and I don't think he looked uh, really at, the, at what was going on in the region. I mean, what to me was a revelation when I was writing the book is how you can't understand what happened in Rwanda during the genocide without first looking at what happened in Burundi, which had had a mini genocide that no one has ever bothered to report on. And what happened in Burundi was you had a Tutsi army killing a, a, a Hutu president who was preaching ethnic reconciliation and terrible pogroms against Hutu men and, and, and boys, uh, which had terrified the Hutu population. Um, and what, what then happened is as a result of that, all these, um, there were a lot of Hutu refugees who fled into Rwanda, um, were living as refugees there. And they looked at the RPF, another aggressive, disciplined, very effective Tutsi army coming into Rwanda and thought, oh, they're going to wipe us out, you know. And, and, and then, you know, surprise, surprise, Happy Aramana is killed, a Hutu president is killed again. And I think that that helped build a complete psychosis in Rwanda. And, and so you really have to include that in the story. And uh, I'd have to reread um, Gurevich's book, but I don't remember him talking much about Burundi. And I think he was so caught up, as, as everyone was when he was writing that book, in, in the experience of the victims and, and what it is like to live through this appalling sort of experience in which uh, your neighbours and, and turn on you and your friends and even people in your, your own family turn on you because of your ethnicity and, and try and wipe you out. Um, I think he was sort of transfixed by that experience, but there was a sort of context was lacking. A, a really shocking thing is how much through the book, you know, these various um, reports are made of, you know, pogroms against Hutus. Of the, I mean, there's a description of Seth Sender Shonga, who haven't we haven't talked about yet, but you know, unrolling, unspooling a kind of whole lot of like printout pages saying you know, these are the names of people who have yeah. been killed by the RPF. And the international community sort of goes, uh, well, you know, omelettes, eggs, trouble on both sides sort of thing. I mean, why was that, do you think? Why were we so reluctant to look at or take seriously the various reports of what had gone on? I think there was a feeling um, that given the horrors that had been meted out to the Tutsi community, you know, which had come close to annihilation, that it was only to be expected that there would be this phenomenon which the, the RPF labelled revenge killings, i.e. RPF soldiers returning to their village, discovering that their entire family had been wiped out by local Hutu villagers who then seized their farms and, and their cattle. And then, and then you would see a lot of, a lot of killings. And, and I think there was a sort of feeling of, well, you know, what, what else do you expect? But it, it, it uh, you know, the whole point which um, Seth Sandershonga, the former Hutu interior minister, uh, was making a man who was assassinated in exile himself by the RPF. Uh, he, he felt it went a lot, lot farther than that. And that, that this was more like ethnic cleansing and uh, a land clearance policy. And, and it was much more systematic and much more, more cynical and ruthless. And I think the, the international community's disinclination to uh, consider that uh, was was partly there was this feeling of, of guilt 
you know, that uh, when the genocide had, had first broken out, the UN had, had actually pulled troops out, um, that the, you know, Rwanda had been left to its own devices and in the process a lot of people had just been massacred and no one had done anything. So there was a, a sense of guilt. And it's a sense of guilt that Kagame has been very adept at sort of constantly using and exploiting and throwing it in the face of the international community whenever it, it criticizes him. Uh, but then I think there was also a, a sense of, well, uh, we know which side we like. I mean, the French certainly never embraced the RPF, but you know, on the British side, uh, in, on the American side, the RPF, these are, these are people we can do business with. They speak our language, they do what they say they will, we respect them, they're incredibly impressive, these articulate, educated, motivated, driven uh, young men, and we've chosen, chosen our side. And I think there was a certain laziness there. And, uh, and uh, I, I mean, one of the messages of my book is I, I just think that simplified narratives are really dangerous. And uh, journalists are very much to blame for these, but so also are diplomats and government officials, Western government officials who go and visit places like Kigali and sort of come away enamored by the, the, these amazing articulate, you know, Tutsi officials they've met. And it, 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 it simply was too much <laughs> for them to consider that the people they were meeting and, and being wowed by um, might also themselves have incredible numbers of skeletons in their, in their covers. Those are these simple narratives the, the book tracks a sort of period, I mean, coincidentally, a period in foreign policy which, where there was this shift between the sort of liberal internationalist flowerings of the 90s and early noughties and then this sudden retreat into, you know, real politique and hard-headedness. I mean, is it right to say that Kagame was sort of a beneficiary of both in the sense that in the 90s he was the great hero who liberated his people and now he may be a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch? Yes, I think he's definitely entered that territory. Uh, something that people tend to forget is how the Rwandans are very good at meeting a, a Western need, which is that when there's a, a security crisis in, um, in Africa, no one in the West wants to send you know, foreign troops, um, white troops, Western troops, to police Africa. And the Rwandans, you know, one of their great exports is disciplined, effective, troops who, who can go in as peacekeepers into Darfur um, and, and all sorts of sort of other trouble spots across the, the continent. And, that, and that's what they do. Uh, and and there's a, the, the Western sense is, okay, well, you know, this is very useful. We, we don't want to sacrifice that. And, and that is sort of put into play when, when the West criticizes Kagame. It's sort of like, uh, you know, one of the cards that, the, that Kagame can put on the table. So I think, yeah, on the pragmatic front, he scores, scores very highly. And then there's this sort of sense of, well, he's a guy who gets things done. You know, he, he may have a dodgy human rights record, but uh, he's very effective. You know, um, he, he was a very sort of proactive, dynamic head of the African Union when he took the chair. He takes no prisoners. He sort of tongue-lashed all his sort of African peers, told them they should start paying for their own security in Africa. And these are all things that Western allies are very pleased to see him doing. So, so I think, yeah, there's a sense in which uh, they wish that more African leaders could be like him. Do you think that the West applies the same standards when it comes to 
human rights and international acceptability to Africa as it does to, if you like, whiter parts of the world? Uh, no, and I think that's, that's really my concern. Um, I think, you know, if you have a, an African president who is routinely winning 99% in elections, uh, as Kagame does, and who has tweaked the constitution so he can keep running for election time and time again, um, and you have a setup in which there is no independent press. I mean, all the journalists, whoever stood up and criticised the government, even to the mildest extent, uh, were either killed or have ended up in exile. The existing media is completely sycophantic. Any opposition leader has, you know, of any who really represents might represent some kind of challenge, um, is either jailed before they get to run in the elections. Or, or they they flee abroad, or you know, in one case they were killed. Um, so I mean, I find we're very. Uh, I think the West is very sort of um, casual about those issues, and doesn't seem to realise that backing a government that uh, is responsible for those kind of repressive policies is probably going to, in the long term, blow up in its face. And in the meantime, it's not at all helpful because it's basically signalling constantly to the Rwandan population that um, Kagame's got very important, powerful friends abroad and they're not bothered by his um, governance record. Yeah. Do, on a personal note, you know, we, we know that this is a man who's, you know, has no trouble in exporting extraterritorial assassination. I mean, when you're writing this book, do you do you worry? I mean, that's a crude way of putting it, but do you worry he's going to come after you? Um, well, it certainly did occur to me, and it's it's not reassuring when you're researching a story when everyone you talk to keeps telling you to be very very careful uh, and to take special precautions because I've never known what precautions I'm supposed to take. And that's I've written this is my fifth book. I've, that's never happened on any of my other books. I've never had people routinely telling me when I was researching Eritrea or Kenya. Or, or DRC, or, you know, are you taking precautions? Are you being careful? You know, be, be, be sure to be very, very careful. And that's happened, you know, for the four and a bit years that I've spent researching. That was a constant refrain. So you do get quite paranoid. I, I mean, I think um, I, what I'm very aware of, just speaking at a sort of pragmatically and cynically, is that as a, as a Westerner, there, there's, I automatically enjoy a level of protection that my Rwandan sources do not. And I'm very lucky. And that's, that's why I can write this book, because I think, you know, it, it would be to take on a, a white journalist. I mean, of course, it's happened before, but it would be a much more high profile incident than just taking on a Rwandan journalist, uh, many of whom have sort of paid the price for being too outspoken in Rwanda. So I, I feel that that's, that's my main sort of protection. Right. Well, do Not Disturb, the story of political murder at an African regime gone bad is published, I think, this week. Michaela, thank you very much indeed for your time. The Spectator is Europe's fastest growing current affairs magazine. Subscribe today and find out why. You'll get 12 weeks in print and online for just £12, 
plus we'll send you a bottle of spectator gin worth 30 pounds so if you do the math your workout that is absolutely free go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash gin